Well, why don't we begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the good news we heard about Ken Rapp tonight. Pray you'll continue to bless him. Things will go well. Pray you'll bless us now as we look into this portion of Scripture that our hearts will be open to the truth of God's Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're looking at uh, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, the good thing about this book is it's only got four chapters, so I'm definitely going to get through the book. You know, it's... uh, some books are harder. I teach 1 Corinthians, I teach 2 Corinthians, and those are hard. Of course, I, I teach them in Greek, and we divide it up into two sections, but even then it's hard to get through all those verses in Corinthians, and this one is fairly easy to get through since we have a limited amount of material. Um, we're looking at chapter 2, and we are talking about the section... Um, that begins in chapter 2, verse 12, this exhortation to Christian obedience. Um, Paul has been urging humility on the Philippian believers because if you're going to have unity, that remember, that, that seems to be if there is one little issue in the church, and it doesn't seem to be a huge one, He comes back to it over and over again about this need for humble-mindedness, this need for humility uh, in order to produce the kind of unity that he would like to see in the... the, We know there's a problem because, you know, Philippians 4, he calls out two ladies right there by name so clearly. But he's alluding to it a number of times. And now in verses 12 through 18, he has this exhortation, this encouragement to... Uh, what I call Christian obedience here. Um, And this can be divided up into three sections I mentioned. Verses 12 and 13 we covered last week was just a general encouragement, uh, general exhortation for encouragement. Um, He says in verse 12... um, here's Here's a paraphrase. Let me paraphrase verse 12. What I'm getting at, friends, is that you should simply keep on doing what you've, been, what you've done from the beginning. When I was living among you, you lived in responsive obedience. Now that I'm uh, separated from you, keep it up. Better yet, redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. But remember he says in verse 12, continue to work out your own salvation. And we said verses 12 and 13 are are uh, kind of well-known texts. They're discussed a lot because they talk about right in parallel two important issues, the sovereignty of God in our salvation and our responsibility in our salvation. Uh, and Christians, you know, are divided about this. Just, you know, there are different Christian beliefs about this. But we generally believe that God is the author of our salvation we're depraved, we're sinful, and if it wasn't for God, we'd still be in that condition. God finds us. We don't find God. Paul says there's none who seeks after God. There's none righteous. There's no one who seeks after God. And so it was God who first began a work in us and caused us to see our sinful condition and gave us faith and justified us and then we begin this work of salvation, this life of obedience. 
And so he, uh, he, in these two verses, we have this, what theologians talk about, the, the mystery of God's sovereignty and yet our participation, our responsibility, our participation in this. And remember in verse 12, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That means your sanctification. Because, he says, verse 13, it's actually God who is working in us. In all these circumstances of life, and all these things that come into our life. Here's Ken. We talked about Ken. We got this good news. Well, this is part of God's sovereignty in Ken's life for his salvation. This is, this is what God has planned for Ken as part of his spiritual life and his spiritual growth and his spiritual journey on this life. God has a purpose in all this. You know, it's not just accidental, haphazard. God's in control of all this. And so we have to look at the things that happen in our lives with the same kind of attitude. So in verses 12 and 13, we have this general exhortation. And then in verses 14 through 16, Paul follows up with this uh, specific, more specific instruction about avoiding dissension in the church. And uh, that's what we want to look at uh, tonight. I call this sort of blameless children. Paul wants us to be sort of blameless children. And what he's calling for is... uh, not to have dissension, not to have uh, 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 disputes in the church. And so let's look at that, verse uh, 14 through 16, blameless children here. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. I say the call to unity, which was first sounded in 127. We've been talking about this numerous times, you remember, and then expanded in 2, 1 through 4 reappears here. Uh, so Paul is saying, if, you want, if you're going to comply with my exhortation to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, this should be without grumbling or arguing. We know we're going to have to work out our own salvation. We're going to have to work out in our lives what God brings into our lives, but how are we going to do it? We can do it with grumbling We can do it with arguing, and Paul says, don't do it that way. It's easy to grumble and argue about things that come into our lives. Verse 15, so that you become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Um. Um, so Paul says, do everything, you know, readily and cheerfully. Don't be bickering. Don't be second at guessing. And then as you go out into this world, I want you to go out as uncorrupted, blameless and pure children of God without fault. Uh, so he's talking about our testimony here clearly, isn't he? As we are in the world, as we engage with people. I say here, the purpose of this exhortation in verse 14, to do everything without grumbling and arguing. Paul now explains, Paul now explains, is so that the Philippians might become blameless and pure. To this he adds the further description, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. So 
by the work of God, by regeneration, by being born again, we've become children of God. And now if we, as we progress in our sanctification, we want to become children of God without fault. So we're children of God. We'll always be children of God. We'll always be a, nothing can change that. We're secure in the fact that we're children of God. But he wants us to grow and become children of God without fault. He wants to move us towards uh, a perfection. Um, so we think about you know all those verses, James 1, about the troubles and trials that come into our life. Their purpose are to mature us, to perfect us. Uh, and so that's what Paul is reflecting upon here. Um, he wants us to be seen by the world around us as people who have pretty solid lives by faithfully adhering to the Word of God contained in the Scriptures uh, as Paul has taught them. And if they do that, they'll be free, he's going to say in verse 16, as you hold firm to the Word of life. So Paul is thinking as you, as you live out the Scriptures, as you faithfully adhere to the Scripture, then your lives are going to be free from things that are blameworthy, blameworthy as well of, as devoid of, of matters foreign or improper, um, your, your nature as children of God will be fairly evident uh, without fault, he says here, uh, blameless and pure, without fault, in the midst of a warped and crooked generation. So we do live in a, in a morally wicked and corrupt generation. And so it's easier for Christians to stand out as people of different <laughs> character and content than would say... 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and, and so forth. And uh, that's something that was pretty obvious for Paul and Christians in the first century because they were living in a pagan world. In a, we, we say really a pagan world where just about anything went. All kinds of sexual immaturity, injustice, and everything. And it seems like we're progressing more into that kind of world. I'm old enough, and some of you are old enough to remember, I grew up in the 50s. And I try to tell people, you know, in the seminary and others about this, this cultural change. When you live long enough, you can see these cultural changes. And the 50s were just a tremendously moral kind of time. Now, I'm not saying they were more regenerate people, but they was very outwardly moral. There was no there was no acceptance of homosexuality or adultery or anything. It was just, just you know, it was condemned universally. So uh, Christians were not much, you know, they weren't necessarily all that different. I mean, I had teachers in a public high school in a big city, and they were Christians, and their conduct didn't differ much from those, from other people. But now it's just like night and day, isn't it? It's just, it's just unbelievable out there in the world. And so Paul says uh, he wants us to be lights, we might say testimonies. Um, he's going to say, as you hold firmly to the word of life, you know, as you live out the scriptures, then you're going to shine. Remember Jesus said, you know, Christ is the light of the world. You're, you're, you're to go out into the world. You're to shine as lights. Paul says in Ephesians, for you were once in darkness, but now you're light in the world. Give, live as children of light. So there's a big emphasis here in this text and other texts about living a pure and holy life that can be a great testimony to others. That's a positive thing. Um, there's been kind of a couple of schools of thought on this. I remember when I was coming along, 
uh, you know, you can, people will say, well, you know, we need to be aggressive, we need to evangelize, we need to give the gospel and, and that kind of thing. That's true. And, and others, you might say, would say, well, we need to live a, a, a holy life and a pure life, and that will influence people. You can't go to either extreme. Uh, sometimes people who have been very aggressive evangelistically, their lives have not always been what it should be. And, you know, when you find out about these things, it's discouraging and distracting. But you can't go the other way. There's people who would try to say, well, I don't really, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to live a good life. I'm just going to be an example. Well, that example is very important. It, it really affects people. And that's what Paul is arguing here. That's a good thing. We still have to be willing to communicate the gospel. We should try to communicate as we have opportunities to people and all that. But the life we live is, is, um, has a tremendous effect. I, I know a lot of stories about your church about this that that I've heard stories from Ken. I've known Ken before he started this church, and and I've heard all kinds of stories about you people, but they're all good. They're all good. <laughs> but, I mean, he tells me, he would tell me story after story about this person who came to the church, and they were influenced by this person, you know. They were, they were at work with this person, and they saw how they lived, or they saw the change in their life. He's told me a lot of stories like that that reflect what we see here, where people had been influenced by the testimony of another Christian. And that's a very positive thing, isn't it? But you can imagine just the opposite is. If you work in an environment and there's a Christian who has a terrible testimony, boy, it would be hard to... It's, I've been in situations like that where a Christian has had a very poor testimony and you're trying to make an impact on that person and you say, oh man, how, how am I gonna, what am I going to do here? Because this other person is just ruining things. you know. And that's what Paul is suggesting here. To the Philippians, he wants them to, uh, their children, but become children without fault, to, to mature and put away these sinful things. So they will shine light like stars in the sky. As you hold firmly, verse 16, to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. I say Paul now clarifies how the Philippians can fulfill their task of behaving as God's children in the light, namely by holding firm to the word of life, the word that brings life is what that means. And he's talking about the scriptures, the truth of scripture. Paul consistently lived his life in light of the approaching day of Christ, for on that occasion, the final account of his stewardship as evidence in the lives of his converts would be rendered. So Paul knew that at the day of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ that we've talked about, the time when Christ will return and he will rapture the church and we, our rewards, our, our works will be inspected our deeds will be inspected. He mentions this in Philippians I mean, 1 6, we saw. And he's saying, I want to be able to, at that day, to be able to, uh, to, be able to boast, to be able to, to, to uh, be happy and, and, uh, and uh, of, good, of good mind about the fact that you folks have, um, you, you folks have proved to be the real thing. Uh, that I'll have cause to be proud of you on that day because you have become children of light, you know, without these faults, and you have lived your life according to the Word of God, that you have lived blameless and steadfast lives. That's going to be a tremendous thing for the Apostle Paul, and it'll be for all of us who know people and have tried to help people. You know, we, we want them to come through, to live their lives for God, and be there on that day.
Well, now in verses uh, 17 and 18, remember we're still in this section where Paul is, is arguing for uh, obedience. And in 17 and 18, Paul is using his own self as an example of the kind of obedience that he is urging upon the Philippians. He says, But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul realist, realistically acknowledges that his apostolic efforts and suffering could lead to martyrdom, but he was more than willing to spend and to be expended for the sake of his converts. This prospect of standing before Christ reminded Paul that it might be seen. And so he uses this uh, metaphor, this uh, illustration of a drink offering. Uh, it's not something that's familiar to us, I don't think. We don't, uh, we're not, we don't ever see anything like that. But remember in the Old Testament like in Numbers 15, it talks about the Israelites had certain kinds of offerings, and one of the offerings they had was a drink offering. They took something, a precious liquid, and they poured it out as a sacrifice. They poured it out on something, you know, so they had various drink offerings in uh, Numbers 15. So my point is Jews were familiar with drink offerings, and pagans were. Pagans were, they had these votives offerings. They had these drink offerings, and so if you went to a temple... If you saw a priest, uh, you would make an offering. You could be an animal, but it could be simply a drink offering. And so Paul uses that as an illustration of sort of pouring out his life here. I'm willing to sacrifice myself for your faith, for your Christian faith, even if that means being poured out. Paul is thinking of the various Christian ministries that he has performed as a sacrifice to God for the Philippians. And this sacrifice for the Philippians is, is the reason Paul is writing this letter. It's the reason he has uh, done all that he's doing. It's, it's why he's encouraged them now. I see here, Paul was not embittered but rejoicing in his present labors and suffering. He, you know, he says he's, he's not only willing to endure his sufferings but to lay down his life at this prospect of being with Christ and having this ministry. It's easy to read these words, but it's hard to grasp that somebody really means this. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to be poured out if this would help your faith. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's tough stuff. And I mean, most of us have a hard time, you know, doing things for other people, sacrificing other people. And we think if we, you know, go out of our way and bring this dish or bake this or pick them up and take them to the doctor, we think we have done some great deed, you know, but we certainly, you know, we don't do these kinds of things and we're not necessarily called upon, but it shows the level of Paul's commitment here. Verse 18, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So he says the Philippians should display the same attitude as the apostle Paul. Um, so what he's saying, whatever you do, don't feel sorry for me, you know, they, don't, they shouldn't wring their hands and, and bewail the fact that the Apostle Paul is on trial and, oh, man, he could, be, he could come up here and die and all this. They've got to learn to find joy in their work and work out their salvation. Share in Paul's attitude about this situation. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to get at here and what I've been saying in the sense that since God is at work in us, to work out his will 
then we have to work out his will in our salvation through all the experiences that come into our life. And in these experiences, we've got to rejoice. We've got to find joy in these things. Ken, don't tell, can we talk so much about it? Ken Rapp has got to learn to find joy through this experience. That's not easy to say, is it? If you go to the doctor and they say the big C word tomorrow, that's not exactly what you're thinking of. Well, isn't this, this is going to be great. This is going to be a great experience, isn't it? With God, I know I've got the cancer, you know. It's just not something we say. But that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look at my imprisonment and all that, and I'm still able to find joy in all this because I know this is part of God's plan for my life. And that helps a lot of times. I don't know if you've ever been very sick. It's happened to me a little bit. It's helped when you've been sick and the doctors don't know or something. If you can kind of put your hands, put yourself in the hands of God and say, you know, this is part of God's plan. It's not the end of the world. That helps. That, doesn't that help mentally? I think that helps with worry. It, it really does. And that's what Paul is able to do here. Well, now we come to a new section here, a resumption of Paul's missionary report. I say here, as the title to this section begins, remember we started with he started after the Thanksgiving and prayer. He gave what we called a missionary report. He was telling them in chapter 1 what had happened since he had left them. Remember, he had founded the church on his second missionary journey. He had gone on. He hadn't come back. Uh, he, he was telling them what, what has happened since then. And now he's kind of resuming that report to them. Paul is resuming the missionary report of one twelve through 26. That's where he told what had happened to him how he was in prison, he was under house arrest, how the gospel was still going out in Rome, even though there were some people who weren't of the best motives and so forth. The primary purpose of these verses is to give information regarding Paul's plans. Okay, now that you're in prison, now that you're under house arrest, uh, what's your plans? Yet they also support 127, 218 by giving examples of the kind of conduct that Paul had urged on the Philippians. So, Paul is going to give us more of his plans. They know he's in prison. They know he's under house arrest. They know that the gospel is being preached in Rome, and Paul's rejoicing in that. Okay, what are you going to do now, Paul? What's going to happen now? And Paul, remember, had already said he wasn't quite sure. You know, if I, I, I might live, I might die. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I hope to get out of prison and so forth. But he's going to tell us more about two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, so he's going to tell us about his plans, but he's going to use these men as more examples of the kind of humble, uh, self-sacrificing attitude that he wants to see among the Philippians. These men are great examples of that kind of humility. So first is Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Because of imprisonment, Paul cannot return to Philippi for the present. Remember, this is Acts 28. Paul is in the house arrest. He thinks he's going to get out. And we said we don't know if he did, but uh, we think he did. Most people think he probably got out and had another missionary journey, but he's not out yet. But he, he says, I, I expect to send Timothy to you pretty soon. Now, he says soon in verse 19, but he doesn't exactly mean soon. <laughs> he doesn't mean right away. He doesn't necessarily mean tomorrow because in verse 23 he says, I hope to send them as soon as I see how things go with me. When we get to verse 23 we'll see. He kind of qualifies it a little bit and says, I want to send him soon but as soon as I see how things go with me. 
So, um, but he says, notice Paul's plans to send Timothy are tempered by the phrase, in the Lord Jesus. So it, it depends upon the plan of God. God is working out his salvation in Paul's life. So he says, I hope to send him, but that's all in the hands of the Lord. The Lord is the one on whom our expectations and our hopes depend and whom, by whom they are determined. But Paul's hoping the Lord will allow him to send Timothy. He says, so that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. Assumes, of course, that the Philippians will be encouraged when they hear news about Paul's situation. So they've been away. Remember, they know Timothy because in Acts chapter 16, when the church was founded, Paul and Timothy and Silas and Paul, they were the four people there. Timothy was there with Paul. So he knows, they know Timothy. They know who he is. They have, uh, remember we talked about in the introduction, the Philippians had heard that Paul is in Rome and they have sent Epaphroditus to minister to him. And he's going to mention Epaphroditus. But he's not sending Epaphroditus back right away. He says, I'm going to send Timothy back to you first. Um, notice what he says in verse 20 about uh, Timothy. He says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. What a testimony that is. Isn't it? Paul gives his first reason for sending Timothy to the Philippians. He has no one in him with him in Rome who's available, apparently. Paul has a number of people who travel with him and work with him and help him, but apparently he has no one with him in Rome who he can send to the Philippians who is such a kindred spirit. I have no one like him. I have no one who shares my, you know, desires and my spirit, who generally cares about the things that affect you, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Here's a, here's a guy who was with me, you know, at the beginning when the church was started, and uh, he he's the, he's the kind of person who is a who will show genuine concern. He's the kind of person who will care for the Philippians and their needs and so forth. Um, he's saying, I, I, I don't have anyone quite like Timothy. I don't have anyone quite like him who, um, who is loyal and genuinely concerned about you. Verse 21, For everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. I say here, these verses provide the ground, the basis for the previous assertion that Paul has no one like Timothy among those who are with him in Rome who might have been sent to Philippi. See, I have no one. Why? Because, here's the reason, because everyone generally looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul has no one quite like Timothy, as I said. He's unique. He's special. He's a, he's a unique guy who will be concerned for your welfare. Other people tend to be concerned about their own affairs rather than the cause of Christ. Now, it brings up a big question as who these others are or who these people are for everyone, for others look out, or everyone looks out. Who are these people that Paul is saying everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ? Um... This seems like a rather severe statement, a rather strong statement, doesn't it? 
You mean the Timothy is the only person with Paul? There's nobody else? There's Obviously, uh, we probably should take this in a more general sense when he says everyone looks out for their own interest. I, I think we should take it in the sense of most people look out. We know that a little bit because the next person he mentions is Epaphroditus, and he commends Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus is with him. So when he says, I have no one who looks out for your interest, he can't mean Epaphroditus. What about Luke? Uh, you know, what about Luke? It, it's hard to know here what's going on. Is it, is, it that, is it that these men have gone other places? Luke is somewhere else. There's no one else to be sent. Timothy is the only one. Um, I say here in the next paragraph, since Paul always displays a high regard for those who travel with him, and that in 421 he sends greetings from the brothers and sisters who are with me. That is, later on, he tells the Philippians, I'm sending greetings from the brothers and sisters who are with me. It does not seem possible that the others who seek after their own interest are those other co-workers whom Paul might have sent to Philippi. It, it, so it's a little bit of a trouble here because later he says, uh, I'm sending you greetings from others. And then he says, everyone looks out for their own interest here. I think, again, we should take this as a general statement that Paul is thinking about some people who are with him. Paul is thinking about some people who are there at Rome. And uh, as he reflects on these people, he thinks of their character. You remember the kind of people we talked about in chapter 1, verses 15, 16, and 17? You remember Paul says, actually, what has happened to me in prison has resulted in the further a proclamation of the gospel. People are preaching Christ out of goodwill, you remember. But he also says there, some are preaching, in verse 15, some are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. There are some people who are preaching for the wrong motives. He says they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing it can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. So there were people there who, though they were preaching Christ, and we've and there are brothers and sisters in Christ, yet their motivation was all wrong. They, their attitude was all wrong. Uh, we tried to delve into why that, what the problem was there, and we suggested that maybe these people had had a prominence in the church before Paul comes along, and then Paul comes to Rome, and they're a little upset that uh, Paul is getting all this attention and so forth. And uh, so they're proclaiming Christ, but it's out of their own selfish ambition. They think they can hurt Paul by doing this. They think this will make Paul mad. This will uh, upset Paul, what we're doing here, because we'll add to his, his troubles and so forth. But Paul, of course, is a much larger man. And he said, what does it matter? Christ is preached and I can rejoice, and I'll still continue to rejoice. So it may be we should think of this statement in light of what we read there in chapter 1 when he says, everyone looks out. That is the general, and it's generally true. <laughs> most people around, most, Paul could probably say, most people around here I see are looking out for their own interest. I mean, we have to admit, we like to look out for our own interest <laughs> mostly, you know. It takes a lot to move us. No one is a truly selfless. We're not, no, there's no selfless people. We, we have to work on being selfless, don't we? It's, it's a hard thing because our natural depravity 
we naturally want to be concerned about our needs and our things and our folks and our people and so forth. So it may be that Paul is just contrasting the character of Timothy who shines out so differently. This man is so different. He doesn't give a hoot about, you know, his own, um, his own interest, his own self-promotion. He, he is totally unconcerned. He's totally devoted to the Apostle Paul as his son, as, as his helper. He's totally devoted to Paul and the interest of Jesus Christ. And that's something that's pretty rare. And so I think that's why he's, he's trying to commend Timothy. He's trying to say something nice about Timothy. And he's doing that by contrasting what we commonly see in Christianity, let's face it. That, that's just the way it is. Verse 22, But you know that Timothy has proved himself. You know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father... He has served me in the work of the gospel. I say the but links this statement about Timothy with verse 20. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with a father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. So after he's contrasted Timothy with others who were concerned about their own interest, in verse 21, Paul gives a second reason for the decision to send Timothy. The first reason is, I'm sending him because I just don't have anybody like Timothy who I know will be concerned about your own interests. He won't come there and be concerned about himself. He'll be totally devoted to your interest and what you need. But the second reason here to sending Timothy to the Philippians is namely his proven character. I'm not just sending somebody uh, who I think is right and proper and has good character. He has proven himself. He's got proven character, which has been known since the founding of the church. He was there in Acts chapter 16, Timothy was, when the church was founded. And he has stuck with Paul. Evidence of his proven character is his ongoing commitment to the advance of the gospel and his close relationship with Paul. He's been like a son. He has served me in the work of the gospel. He's obviously younger. He has this father-son relationship. Remember Timothy, uh, Paul uh, found Timothy, remember there in uh, uh, the latter part of Acts chapter 15 on his start of his second missionary journey when he went to Lystra and he found Timothy there. Uh, circumcised Timothy and took him with him on his missionary trip. He, Silas, he and Silas took Timothy along. So because he was recommended, you remember, by the people there in the church and so forth. So, so the, the Philippians will know that when Timothy does come, he's bringing, he, 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 he's a person who can be trusted. Um, he can be uh, dependent upon. It's just like the apostle Paul was there. He's a, he's a person I can totally trust, and that's, that's a wonderful thing to have someone that you can totally trust and, and uh, give a mission like that to. Verse 23, he says, I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And so that kind of qualifies what we read before where he said in verse 19, um, therefore, I'm going to send him very soon. So this is kind of explaining that language of verse 19. Paul gives renewed expression to his hope of sending Timothy to the Philippians. 
soon and explains that as soon as he knows how things will turn out, he will dispatch his colleague. So Timothy is not going to be the bearer of this letter, however, because he wants to remain, retain Timothy until he finds out. We're going to find out this man, Epaphroditus, who has come from Philippi, is the man who's going to bring the letter back to the Philippians, this letter. So he's not going to take this letter. Remember, in, in Paul's times, there was no mail system for private citizens. The Romans had a mail system that was used for government mail, government officials and so forth. But if you wanted to send a letter to Rome, you had to find somebody who was going to Rome to take this, take a letter. If you want to find somebody like Paul going to Philippi, Paul often had to send somebody who was, uh, you know, in this case, Epaphroditus is going to go back so he can send that letter through him. But Timothy will not be the bearer because he says, I'm going to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Remember we said that Paul was in prison and house arrest for two years. He wrote four epistles, Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians. We think they were written towards more the beginning of this imprisonment and then Philippians at the end when he thinks things have worked out and he kind of he kind of thinks he's going to get out of this. So he implies that he thinks there's some decision coming. We've kind of read that already in Philippians 1. He thinks there's some decision coming. He thinks it might be favorable here. And so I'm just going to hold on to Timothy. I know he's the man I can trust to really be concerned and represent me, but I'm going to hold on to him until I see how things go. And... Uh, um, and this letter will alert the Philippians that Timothy's coming, um, and it'll explain why he didn't come with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus will bring the letter, and he'll read the letter to the church, and this letter will explain about Timothy and why he's not coming right now. But they know that when Timothy, when they read this letter, then and, and Epaphroditus reads it, the then they'll know that. He's bringing word about the developments in Paul's legal case. So Paul's not going to have him... Paul's writing the letter and he's going to finish the letter, but he's not going to send the letter until he finds out apparently something. And then he has Epaphroditus take the letter and Epaphroditus can report orally, here's what's happened to Paul, here's his case, here's the situation. And Timothy will come then as soon as things are more clear. Verse 24, he says, And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. A visit from Timothy was not intended to be a substitute for his personal presence. Uh, so Paul says, I'm hoping and I'm praying that I'm going to be able to come rather quickly too. I'm hoping that, that uh, uh, you know, Timothy will come and then I'll be able to come. So this wasn't meant to substitute, as I say, for Paul's personal presence. Paul seems hopeful and confident that he'll be set at liberty. He'll be able to visit the Philippians. And uh, he, he now explicitly mentions his apostolic visit. He alluded to it in 127 and in two, chapter 2, verse 12. Now he mentions, I'm, I'm planning to come myself. And uh, many people feel that he did. Many people feel he, he got out, he had a fourth missionary journey, he went over to Spain, came back to Crete, went to Ephesus, Colossae, uh, came up into Macedonia and went to Philippi. That's very, very possible. So Paul is continuing his missionary report about what's happened to him since he's come to Rome. 
And he's using, he's, so he's told us about Timothy. But remember, he's also using this to drill home some of the teachings he's been teaching about humility, hasn't he? <laughs> There's no one like Timothy who, who naturally, you know, doesn't care about his own self. He cares about others more. And that's a great example of the self-sacrifice uh, humility that he wants the Philippians to have. Then he mentions the man they know very well, Epaphroditus, in 2.25 through 30. He says, But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. How soon Timothy and Paul himself may be able to visit the Philippians is uncertain, but the apostle considers it necessary to send Epaphroditus at once. This man, Epaphroditus, is only mentioned in the New Testament here, and then later in chapter 4, verse 18 of this same book, we'll see him mentioned. But we find that um, Epaphroditus had brought a gift to uh, the Apostle Paul. We assume it's some sort of financial gift to help him out. Remember, he says there in 418, you're the only church that when I left Macedonia that really helped me, that really shared with me and, and uh, helped support me and so forth. And now they have been concerned about the Apostle Paul. I mean, it's been about <clears throat> 10 years since the Apostle uh, left, um, since the Apostle left Philippi. It's been about 10 years, and um, so they haven't seen the apostle in 10 years. That's a long time, and so they have apparently communicated him a little bit somewhere along the line, but now they've been out of communication because Paul has been on that sea journey and has come to Rome. They apparently may have heard something, but uh, so they have sent uh, Epaphroditus to see to Paul's need. And notice how he's described in these glowing terms. He's quite a fellow. He says he's a brother, he calls him. He's a co-worker. He's a fellow soldier. That's in his relationship to the apostle. For as far as the apostle, he's a brother, a co-worker, and a fellow soldier. Then his relationship to the Philippians, he's their messenger and their minister. It's interesting, this word a messenger is, is actually the word apostolos, apostle, but he's not really an apostle in the sense of the apostle Paul the Twelve. It's just that the word apostle just means a sent one, someone who is sent to represent someone. So he's their representative. They have sent him as their official representative to represent Paul to take care of my needs. So he served as their minister, it says. He served as their messenger. He served as their minister, functioning on their behalf as a kind of a sacred service to the Apostle Paul. Verse uh, 26, For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. I say here two reasons are given why the Philippians thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus to his home church at Philippi. Why is Paul sending him back? One, his longing for all his friends. He longs to see you all. And second, his distress over their anxious care for him. We don't know how these communications took place. You know, there were people traveling back. Rome's a big city. It's the capital of the city, capital, capital of the Roman Empire. So there are people traveling back, and apparently word gets back here. But after leaving Philippi, 
Epaphroditus had fallen sick. He's distressed because you heard he was ill. And uh, we don't know, you know, where he fell ill at. We don't know how. It may be on the, maybe it was on the trip. Maybe on the way he uh, fell ill, got some disease, some sickness, or maybe it was at Rome. We don't know exactly how. But he says he fell ill, and he was distressed because you heard he was ill. So somehow the people back at Philippi had learned of his illness and were naturally concerned about this. Remember when people got sick in the ancient world, really sick, they died a lot of times, you know. I mean, there wasn't, uh, you know, modern medicine or anything, and people, when they got pretty sick, they just often died, and, and it was extremely common. It, uh, people didn't recover from things, and no modern medicines or anything like that. Um, so they, you know, and Paul says, in fact, he was almost at death's door, but he did recover, and so his, 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 he, 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 because he recovered, he knew his Philippians friends would be uh, upset and, and, and distressed about you know, him, what had happened to him. You know, maybe he blamed himself. Oh, look what I've done to the, my poor friends back at Philippi. They sent me on this journey to help the Apostle Paul, and what I've done, I've just gotten sick, and now it's a greater burden. Verse 27, Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. In verse 27, Paul now confirms in writing what the Philippians had previously only heard, namely that Epaphroditus had indeed been sick. But they may have not known how ill he really was. Notice it says he almost died. He was, you know, apparently right at death's door. And so they may have not known that. Um, now, fortunately, when Epaphras takes this letter back and he's well, you know, he'll see how well he is. He'll see how merciful God is. God had mercy on Paul, Paul says, because he delivered Epaphroditus from death's door. And that would have just added sorrow, you know, to the apostle Paul's other sorrows, to, you know, sorrow upon sorrow burdens already there um, and again we don't know what his exact sickness is but in verse 30 Paul does say uh, later he says he almost died for the work of Christ he risked his life to make so he risked he almost died for the work of Christ some people take that as possibly it was related to his journeys to Rome he was trying to get to Rome to help the apostle Paul and he got ill, perhaps, from the hazards of the journey and so forth, and that's what happened to him. But it's interesting, isn't it, that, uh, that Paul says he almost died. Here's the great apostle who can work miracles. <laughs> he can work miracles. Paul healed people, didn't he? I mean, there's examples of Paul miraculously healing people. Uh, in Acts chapter 14... In his first missionary journey with he and Barnabas, they went out and uh, remember they was at Lystra. They uh, found this man who had been lame since he was born, and they healed him. And remember the people went to sacrifice to Paul, Acts 14. Remember later uh, when Paul was shipwrecked there on the island of Malta, he was there for a number of months during the winter months and. Uh, there was this Roman official, Publius, and his father was sick. 
and it says Paul healed him, and he healed all the people on the island and so forth. So, you know, you might say, well, Paul, why don't you just heal this guy? You know, what's the story here, you know? So apparently, you know, these miraculous healings and giftings that we see were not used sort of just indiscriminately. We think that these miraculous gifts had a purpose mainly to authenticate the message of God, the messengers of God. Jesus did miracles to show who he was. He was the Messiah. The apostles did miracles to prove that they were apostles, that they had apostolic authority. And Paul did that. He did that. But when he did those miracles that we know about in the book of Acts, he was doing them in conjunction with his giving of the gospel, his ministry, showing who he was, that he was an apostle, a genuine person. So it appears these miracles were for the purpose of, of authenticating the ministry of these men and not just, just to heal anybody. Because here is Epaphroditus who's very worthy to be healed and Paul couldn't heal him or didn't heal him, you know in this particular case. So they weren't used just indiscriminately. I mean, Paul couldn't even heal himself. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I had this thorn in the flesh. And three times I asked the Lord to, and this thorn in the flesh means a thorn in the physical body. Uh, I had this physical problem and I asked the Lord three times, said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, you know. So, I mean, I'm just saying all that kind of goes against you know, a lot of our, the faith healers and people like that. Uh, I remember hearing Jimmy Swigert years ago. If you know Jimmy Swigert, and I was a famous charismatic preacher. He's still around, got in a lot of trouble, but he's still around as a church. But I remember hearing him one time when I was in seminary. I was used to go to work every day at about 1230, and I'd listen to him on the radio for about 15 minutes. He had his program. But he said, you know, the, Paul just didn't have the faith, friends. Paul just lacked faith. That was his problem, why he couldn't get rid of that thorn in the flesh. He just, he just didn't have it, you know. Well, I, I don't think that's the case, and I don't think Paul didn't have the faith here in that case. It just wasn't that God just didn't indiscriminately heal all people everywhere Paul went in that kind of situation. He says, verse 28, Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Therefore, because of Epaphroditus' illness, from which he had now recovered, and the Philippians' concern for their friend, Paul is sending him back to, uh, to Philippi more eagerly. So the twofold purpose of this change of plan, he says, therefore, you know, he had come there to minister to the apostle Paul, and apparently kind of to stay there. But now, because of his sickness, that's changed the plan. And the purpose of the plan here is that the Philippians might be glad when they saw Epaphroditus. They've heard he's sick. And they can see him, and plus he provides a way to send this letter back, obviously. And that Paul's own sorrow would be lessened, he says here, because knowing Epaphroditus was home again and in good health. So that's why he's sending him. You'll see him, you'll be glad, and I can have less anxiety because I know he's home back safe again. It was perilous to travel between Rome and a place like Philippi. Perilous, perilous. Ancient writers discuss this all the time. Robbers and thieves and just... Just, it was just a very difficult time traveling on Roman roads. It, it's somewhat safe, but not, not, not like the kind of safety we would like. Verse 29, So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Paul therefore exhorted the, exhorted the Philippians to welcome Epaphroditus with joy as fellow Christians should. 
So here's a man, he says, he's fulfilled his mission with distinction. He's done everything he has been told to do. He deserves an appropriate homecoming. Give him the recognition that's due him for his faithful and sacrificial service. Hold him and people like him in very high esteem. People like him deserve the best you can give, the apostle Paul says, for people who are consecrated, dedicated, like Epaphroditus. Verse 30, because he almost died for the work of Christ. Honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. The reason why a genuine welcome was deserved by Epaphroditus was twofold. First, he says he's been engaged in the work of Christ. He actually risked his life to accomplish the work of Christ. Second, he says he'd been trying by his labors to make up for the Philippians' absence from Paul. The Philippians hadn't, obviously due to circumstances, hadn't been around, hadn't been able to help Paul. And so they owed this man, the Philippians owed Epaphroditus their gratitude because of what he had done in their uh, absence. Epaphroditus' close call with death is to be explained in relationship to his sickness, verse 27. Remember, he says he risked his life. He almost died for the work of Christ. Remember, verse 27, it talks about his being sick, and here he's almost sick to death, almost to death. So whatever this ailment was, it was apparently related to his labors for Christ, his helping the Apostle Paul or on his trip there. Um, and so, you know, perhaps he, it resulted from the rigors of travel and was compounded by his efforts to uh, continue ministering to Paul in spite of being sick. You know, maybe he was sick and still wanted to help Paul, and he got even sicker. We don't know. Um, it wasn't merely an unavoidable circumstance. He, he you know, it was something that it, this was risking his life. It wasn't just that he just got sick accidentally. No, this, this sickness was brought about, Paul says, because of his work for the ministry. It wasn't just because he just happened to be walking down the street and got the flu or something. No, he, he, this sickness came upon him because of his strenuous work, whatever that work is, for the ministry. And therefore, Paul says, we should honor people like him who are willing to give their lives for this kind of service. Well, that brings us to the end then of chapter 2. And... Uh, we take a little turn here now in chapter 3, as we'll see next week, where Paul begins to talk about false teachers and uh, false teaching. Uh, and we'll have to kind of explain how that fits into the argument that we have discussed so far, because it might seem a little strange to suddenly bring up these false teachers here, but we'll see how that works out next week. Why don't we stop here for tonight since we've kind of come to this breaking point and we'll, Lord willing, pick it up next week. All right? Okay. Thank you.